This is the MACP podcast, episode number four. In this episode, Seth O'Neill, MACP, musculoskeletal physiotherapist and PhD candidate, will be talking to Professor Hakan Alfredson. Professor Alfredson is an orthopaedic surgeon and one of the world's leading consultants specialising in tendons. He received his PhD in sports medicine from Umar University in 1997 and then received a full professorship in sports medicine in 2002. He's been a doctor for the Swedish national junior ice hockey team and has published over 150 articles and has been invited as a keynote speaker at international conferences in more than 20 countries. We've got Professor Hakan Alfredsson here. Um, Professor Alfredsson's a sports medicine um, consultant and, and professor at uh, Umeå University in Sweden, um, currently working at um, Pure Sports Medicine as well. In London, uh, once a month you come over to do a clinic for three four days, do surgical uh, interventions and uh, clinical patients uh, in the room as well. Yeah. Lovely. So um, I think everyone that has an interest in tendons probably knows a bit about you and a bit about your background story and how you developed sort of eccentrics and how it's here sort of come up with. Um, and certainly we'll make sure we link to the um, BJSM podcast that you did with uh, Kareem on that as well, if that's yeah. all right. So I think to start off with, uh, we, we put out the feeders on Twitter and got lots of questions that people wanted to ask you, particularly about um, tendinopathy and where we go. And I think really it'd be quite nice to hear your ideas around um, treatment and why loading-based treatment, particularly obviously eccentrics, um, work. Yeah, no one really knows why eccentrics works. We, we have uh, had multiple theories and... Uh, multiple suggestions from different types of research but no one really knows what we believe but we haven't been able to prove is that we believe it's more a, a, a traumative effect on the nerves attaching to the deep side of the tendon. And there is some research suggesting that if you subject the tendon to eccentric loading the tendon moves one way and the cage of fat pad moves the other way. And if that is the case, then it could very well be effects of, of shearing forces where the fat pad, pad moves one way and the tendon the other and the nerves attaching to the deep side of the tendon are, are traumatized. And that, that could fit with the severe pain there is initially and later on it, it fades off a little bit. There, are, there is also some now now some new research from Christoph Spang where he could show that there were actually nerve degeneration in, in, in the tissue on the deep side of the Achilles. Uh, so, so it's interesting if that has been caused by eccentric training or if it was a coincidence. And that nerve degeneration at the uh, anterior aspect of the tendon, is it associated with chemical changes as well? Uh, this was part of a, a project on the plantaris tendon, but it was a, a coexisting finding that there was actually nerve degeneration, and all, all these patients had first tried eccentric training, so you wonder if it could have been part of that. Okay, so we don't know whether that degenerative change exists prior to the eccentric, no. or whether it's induced because of it. No, so we okay. need to look more into that, uh, have, have um, normal tendons, biopsy normal uh, tendons also. So that's probably in line for a, a new project coming on. Sounds good. 
Um, in, in terms of then looking at different aspects of the tendon, obviously you've done some work on Kegger's fat pad and uh, I believe also the uh, fat pad in the knee as well, so looking at yeah. the infrapatellar fat pad. Um, what do you think we need to do when we consider sort of surgical intervention or our physio intervention in relation to the fat pad? Yeah, it, it seems that um, the fat is very much involved and we tend to call, when we look at these tendons in the wound, we tell to, tend to say it's a fat attack because the fat on the deep side, both for the Achilles and patella tendon, has more or less started to grow into the tendon. Uh, so it's actually quite difficult to if you want to release the fat, like we do when we do the scraping procedures and shaving procedures, um, it's sometimes quite difficult to get rid of the fat. So there's something going on in the fat that we don't know how it works. And it's in the fat where the nerves are. Uh, it's mainly sympathetic nerves we see in tendinopathies, some sensory but mainly sympathetic nerves. But how that starts and what initiates this process is still unknown. But the fat pad is, is very important. And there is also lots of potential in that fat pad because if you, if you manage to cure the pain by releasing the fat from the tendon, then despite that you have never been inside the tendon, the inside of the tendon changes. So the thickness of the tendon can go down dramatically. Within six months, uh, an Achilles tendon can go down six, eight millimeters in, in, in size, despite that you have never been in there. You have only interfered with the fat. So there must be high potential yeah. in, in that tissue. We know that there is high potential in the Hoffa fat pad, but we have maybe not known very much about the potential in the Kager fat pad, but it might be similar. A six to eight millimeter change in tendon diameter of the Achilles is huge. As yeah, well. within six months. You know. yeah. So that's, that's profound. Uh, which probably leads us into structure because obviously there's been a lot of studies, uh, particularly systematic review by um, Ben Dean and uh, another group on um, structural change in, with rehab for mm. tendons and how it doesn't correlate to pain and, and sort of functional elements like the visa A score. Yeah. What do you think about structure and its relevance in current clinical practice? Yeah, we, we know that you can have structural abnormalities without having pain, but it's extremely rare that we find pain in, in a tendon with a normal structure. Extremely rare and sometimes you need to provoke the tendon with intensive loading before you scan it to really find the very small regions with structural changes on, on the deep side. Uh, so that could be a reason to why, why uh, uh, there are studies showing normal structure and, and pain, but I, I, in, in my hands uh, it's extremely rare. And if if the structure is normal, then we start to look for uh, other diagnoses. Like now we know more about the plantaris, so you can have Achilles tendon pain that's being related to the plantaris. You find a normal Achilles when you scan, but instead you have the close by located plantaris that's the reason to pain. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the, in the knee, for example, you can have a, a uh, medial plica coming in and interfering with the tip of the kneecap, causing a similar type of pain. And then you end up having a normal scan of the patellar tendon, but you instead have a plica. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you can have a cartilage lesion in the distal patella, 
that mimic the pain from Jumper's knee. And uh, presumably with those images, you wouldn't see any increased vascularity in the tendon as well? No, exactly. Okay. How much weight do you put on the vascular change in, in the tendon as observed by Doppler? Yeah, uh, before invasive treatment, uh, you can use the vascularity a lot. Uh, it, it matches the reading with pain uh, very efficiently. Yeah. It's not 100%, but very efficiently. And again, you need to provoke the tendon. So before all treatments we institute, like injection treatments or, or surgery, we tell the patient to uh, load his tendon up for a couple of days with heavy load, painful load, before we scan them uh, preoperatively. Uh, and then there is a very high correlation between where they have the structural changes, the high blood flow, and where the nerves are located. And we have taken biopsies from those regions uh, and seen that it, that's the regions where we have the high numbers of sympathetic and sensory nerves. Mm -hmm. But again, you have to standardize uh, the conditions when you do your scannings. Uh, painful provocation before you scan. Uh, and uh, then, then you can use the flow. Uh, and it's, it's quite often very localized. Uh, especially on high level athletes, they quite often tend to have very minor regions with structural changes and a very localized region with high blood flow. Um, and that's probably not been done in the research where they've done the painful loading prior to it to make sure that there is a... Yeah, I, I, I question many of these studies, you know, there was, there was a study severely criticizing um, neovascularization and its importance, mm -hmm. but if if you look what studies they cited, um, the, there was no standardization of how the, the um, ultrasound examinations were done and uh, uh, used different types of machine. The Doppler equipment is very, it's very important that you have a good enough Doppler equipment. Um, so you have to be able to pick up the, the flow in those small vessels and better machines do that better than poor machines. So, so, uh, there are many factors, and another factor is how you do the examination. If you hold the probe very, very lightly on the tendon, you can pick up flow easier than if you push. Mm -hmm. If you push, you won't see any flow. So it's very much also <clears throat> operator dependent. Yeah. So I, I question those uh, studies. But after uh, invasive treatment, you cannot really trust the, the flow. Because if you have done a scraping procedure or an, a sclerosing injection, then you induce high blood flow inside the tendon. So th there is a very high, most often longitudinal blood flow uh, the weeks after a scraping procedure. And we believe that could be due to interference with the nerves outside the tendon. Maybe they if you cut the sympathetic nerves, you get this response inside the tongue. Okay. So, after treatment, this it's not reliable. Okay. So, so you mentioned your scraping technique, and uh, you've obviously pioneered that technique. So, can you tell us a little bit about it, so the physios at uh, yeah, the podcast yeah. can understand what it is and uh, what it entails? Yeah, you know, first we we started with the eccentrics, and then because this was kind of a uh, un. Uh, suspected finding uh, that this should work so well, we went more into the possible mechanism. Uh, 
around pain and tendinopathy. And we found this localized high blood flow on the deep side of the tendon in relation to structural changes inside the tendon. So then we, we tried injections to try to, to uh, find out how important is that flow outside the tendon. Uh, and then we found that if you inject it in those regions, the pain disappeared. Uh, and then we took biopsies that showed that there were nerves together with those vessels. So the injection treatment, uh, from that we learned a lot. The negative side with that was that it was quite difficult to learn. Uh, our radiologist was very skilled after 30 years experience in, in uh, ultrasound interventions. But it, it's, it's quite difficult to find those minor regions. So some groups uh, didn't succeed in doing that, while other groups learned how to do it. Yeah. And another side effect was that it required uh, often three to five uh, treatments yeah. with eight weeks in between. So it took quite long. So then we said, well, if it's that easy that you only need to find a region with vessels and nerves, uh, then why not go in with a knife and scrape it instead of injecting five times? Then, then if we are lucky, we end up having a one-stage treatment. So that was the background to, to uh, scraping treatment. Uh, local anesthesia in a small, uh, in a minor region, where the ultrasound and Doppler matched the changes, and then scrape loose the fat in that region, same region that we used to inject in. Uh, and that worked out fine. So now, now we, we uh, uh, in most cases, we, we use this scraping technique. See. So I think it was 2009 you did a treatment algorithm uh, with Jill Cook in the BJSM about how to take patients through. Yeah. Could you talk through a normal patient then that you're seeing for the first time with an Achilles and whether you then consider surgery as an early intervention or loading first or where yeah. you go with it? Uh, in general, if, if it's now, if we discuss mid-portion Achilles, yeah. so, so in, in general uh, we want them to have tried heavy, loaded, painful eccentrics. Yeah. And before we institute that, we do an ultrasound and drop and Doppler examination to exclude partial ruptures because you can do that with ultrasound and, and Doppler. Yeah. If they then uh, fail with the eccentrics, uh, we go straight on a scraping procedure. Yeah. Yeah. There is one exception, and that is if we find that this patient uh, have mid-portion pain, but also, uh, lots of tenderness and pain localized on the medial side. Then we are aware that this could be a case with the combination of tendinopathy in the Achilles and plantaris tendon involvement. So those cases, we know that they tend to do quite poorly with the eccentrics. We tell them that, okay, try your eccentrics, but if, if nothing happens after four or six weeks, mm -hmm. uh, then I think we should operate because I think it's a, a plantaris tendon involvement. Uh, and from your experience, the, the plantaris tendons not respond so well to normal uh, conservative management. Then. Yeah, and uh, it, there are many many factors involved. But when you do the eccentrics and lower the heel, if you go over in pronation and have a plantaris that that is located uh, closer than normal to the Achilles, they they get in a in much closer relationship in pronation. So it could actually be that your eccentrics provoke the plantaris involvement. Uh, 
So if you have that type of patient with medial pain together with the thick painful Achilles, be aware of the plantaris because it might respond poorly to eccentrics and then uh, I think surgery should be instituted early. Okay. Uh, I've certainly read and discussed it with um, Joe Cook that um, they, they think that dorsiflexion particularly is a aggravating factor for yeah. plantaris tendons and also they've suggested the pain's a little bit more higher than a typical yeah. medial. Is that something you've... Yeah, in my experience, the pain most commonly, uh, pain and tenderness is most commonly where, where you have the low insertion of the medial soleus. So where the medial soleus come down and insert, uh, that's where the plantaris is squeezed between the so medial soleus and the Achilles. And, and that depends a little bit on how low your soleus inserts, it's individual, yeah. but often it's about 7-8 centimeters up. So that's often the, the point of tenderness. Yeah. And do you think the degree of rotation of the, the tendon and soleus particularly is uh, a factor in the plantaris ones that you yeah, see? Yeah, it very, could very well be. Um, could very well be. And it's also important that plantaris issues can sometimes mimic partial ruptures. Uh, because uh, we now know that there are 9-10 different positions of the plantaris. Uh, the, the, the most common one is when it's one centimeter away and never a factor. But we know also that it can insert into the Achilles, fascia-like, further down, instead of inserting to the calcaneus. It can invaginate into the Achilles, uh, a couple of centimeters and then go out further down. Um, so there are many positions. Mm -hmm. And especially the one that invaginates, we know that that can cause uh, sudden onset pain, very sharp pain, and they think they've got the partial rupture in Achilles, and then the scan comes out more or less normal, and they're pain-free within a couple of days. So that's uh, good to know that they can mimic partial ruptures, but the pain goes away within a couple of days. I think in elite sports they've had quite a few plantaris ruptures that have yeah. been problematic for longer periods as well. Yeah, and I, and I don't, I think, uh, I don't think it has been total ruptures. Maybe partial ruptures because when they totally rupture, that's the same as when we cut them, yeah. and then they seldom cause any problems. Yeah, yeah. From, from a plantaris perspective, being a, a big long tendon with lots of Golgi tendon organs and providing, mm. we, we theorise anyway, a lot of uh, proprioceptive feedback. Have there been any deficits in knee function or, or proprioceptive awareness of the limb after the surgery that you've been aware of? Um, it's interesting you brought it up because um, last week uh, my research student uh, Christoph Spang mm -hmm. defended a thesis on, on the plantaris tendon yeah. and, and uh, he had looked at uh, everything that's known about the plantaris and about its functions and um, uh, it's a very thin tendon, so it's not very likely that it has a, a, a power function, or, or a, a, but, but it could very well have a function related to uh, uh, proprioception uh, uh, and things like that. Uh, and when you have the knee in a straight position, it might be that it helps to, to coordinate the ankle joint uh, movements. Uh, but we have taken it out now in many, many individuals, uh, many on very high levels, and we have never seen any side effects. Okay. So um, hopefully, uh, 
hopefully there is nothing uh, of major importance that we disturb when we take it out. Uh, and of course, we, we should never take it out routinely. We should only take it out if there is this combination of medial pain, uh, not allowing this individual to load on his desired level. So, so that needs to be uh, remembered. And I guess one of the other things that links with your Plantaris work is UTC imaging as a method. And we're interested in your thoughts around UTC because obviously you've worked with Lorenzo and done yeah. some studies using it. Yeah, it's a very promising method, very interesting uh, to see whether it can be used uh, in humans and, and whether the same conclusions that are being drawn on, 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 on horse tendons can be drawn also on, on humans. It, it's certainly promising, and we are trying it now in research studies. One, one of the studies was in Christoph Spang's thesis, and, and it's um, Lorenzo Maschi's work here at Pure, where um, uh, we had a look at patients having medial, uh, mid-portion tendinopathy with tenderness on the medial side. So we did uh, ultrasound, UTC, uh, before surgery, and then during surgery, we went in from the medial side, uh, took photos to verify the position of the plantaris, took the plantaris out, uh, had the patient to go through this traditional rehab, and repeated the scans uh, in, in periods. And after six months, we found that that the preoperative finding with isolated changes on the medial side of the Achilles in the in the uh, same region as the plantaris was touching the Achilles, these changes had normalized after six months. So it clearly indicates that uh, um, the, the compression or interference from the plantaris uh, uh, was involved uh, because removal was uh, the factor that could change it. Of course we did also a minor scrape in the surroundings but, but um, most likely it was the plantaris, and that, that could be shown with the, the UTC, the, the, the changes in the structure over time. Okay. Uh, so it, it picks up uh, structural changes, uh, uh, matrix stability much better than ultrasound. Yeah. Uh, so it's promising, but, but it's still a new method, so we have to be careful and, and do lots of studies before we... Before we um, can say it's the, the best tool out there. My name is Uzo Ehiok and I'm the Communications Officer for the MACP. This is a great opportunity to take a quick break and to tell you about the MACP and other continuing professional development activities which you can access. The MACP offers high quality educational opportunities through a variety of formats including short courses, lectures and online learning including topics such as motivational interviewing, introduction to musculoskeletal radiology, manual therapy, spinal masqueraders, MSK updates, and of course, conferences. In 2016, the MACP will host the IFON Conference. The IFON Conference is a prestigious international conference held every four years to celebrate innovation and research within the neuromusculoskeletal physiotherapy field. In July 2016, we will host a conference in the UK in Glasgow and the theme for the conference will be Expanding Horizons.
This conference will be of benefit to both clinicians and researchers alike and will bring together leaders and innovators in the clinical, academic and research fields. This conference will cover five strands which will include advanced assessment, practice and managing complex patients, integrating research into practice, health promotion and public health, changing roles and scope of practice, teaching, learning and professional development. To find out more, simply join our mailing list and receive all the latest news and information on iPhone 2016. This will include being the first to hear our keynote speaker podcast as they are released. So to find out more and to register your interest, visit the iFont website at www.ifontconference.org and see you there in July 2016. In terms of then thinking about loading, um, and Lorenzo particularly asked one of the questions around loading is, um, should it only be eccentric? Um, do we have other options and, and really uh, are they viable or yeah, what's your... Yeah, uh, it's been discussed now for many years, but and there are, I think there are 20 RCTs showing that eccentric works fine and it's sort <laughs> of the first line treatment for meat mm. And then there are many other loading strategies that have been suggested, but, but unfortunately there is not enough science. Uh, very few RCTs on other specific loading regimens and um, now isometrics has become popular but still we we, we only have a few pilots and um, uh, it, it's it's likely that it's good but we need need uh, maybe 10 RCTs or something like that to be able to draw any further conclusions. Yeah, because uh, has obviously just done the heavy slow resistance training the final yeah. round to do the Achilles one. Uh, after a bit of a gap of a few years. And, yes, uh, and that, that was really promising, but then everything stopped, and now I haven't heard anything at all uh, about that just methodology, so I, but uh, maybe there will come more research yeah, on it. They've just published the um, Achilles one in an American Journal of Sports uh-huh. Med recently, last month or this oh, month, I think. So, um, yeah, so it's got the same results as a yeah. RCT as eccentrics compared to the heavy slide. Yeah. So um, it, it looks similar at the minute but yeah. like you said need much more of them yeah yeah uh, there's a lot of eccentric work done <laughs> yeah yeah um regarding then the isometrics that you just mentioned um uh, most of sort of jill's work and ebony's work is trying to look at that from a pain perspective and mm. in-season athletes mm. um do you think it might have a place within season athletes where we can't maybe do proper strength training because it overloads them and they break down or uh, yeah the Maybe, maybe we've had some some good experiences from uh, certain athletes uh, having tried it in season. It seems tolerable, uh, and it seems that they get they they, they lower the pain levels. Uh, so so it it's uh, really promising. Um, if it's uh, if it's just about uh, lowering pain, uh, it it could be a, could be a key to to, to that. Obviously, you're working at Pure Sports at the moment. Um, how do you find British people cope with doing painful eccentric loading? Because that's something I've always yeah, found. it's it's a little little different. Yeah, uh, I I think uh, comparing athletes, I think British athletes are very tough, really really tough. They tolerate lots of pain and and uh, 
have a, um, at least the ones I've met are mentally very, very, very strong. Uh, but I don't know about the, the general population because uh, Mafuli did a study many years ago where he subjected patients, uh, recreational athletes and non-actives to eccentrics uh, and he only got 50% good results and uh, of course that study was only, he saw the patient once and gave them the, the, the protocol and saw them after three months. Uh, and the difference in Sweden was that we, we uh, follow these patients very closely uh, we saw them back one week after started treatment make sure they did it correctly on the phone once a week to to make them continue despite having severe pain because it is painful initially you know? so we we really try to push them through pain mm -hmm. and i think that could be a difference that you, you need to really uh, help these patients understand that this is painful and it's supposed to be painful to continue despite that you get worse the first two weeks. Yeah. So I think uh, the English people are probably similarly tough as the Swedes if they just get the right help from the, uh, the uh, doctors and physios to, to uh, get going with pain. Yeah. And in terms of the actual load, because obviously you guys proposed um, external loading progressing up to around 50% of body mass. Yeah, even more. As yeah. We, we, only, we told them to load as much as they tolerate. So to try to, to all, the, all the time look for a new level of painful loading. Um, so Do you think the external loading is a critical part? I think so. That? Especially now when we strongly believe that it's the movement uh, with, between the kegger and the tendon that, that could be responsible, then I think heavy load will, will maybe traumatize even more. Okay. Uh, There's certainly some data around there that shows that, uh, that when, when you've done the rehab it doesn't rectify the, the sort of underlying muscle deficits, um, both by Silbernagel and we've done a little bit on the same, but I think yeah. the external loading of participants has been insufficient. Yeah, because you know, our study, we, we showed that they, they normalized the mm. uh, deficiency. Yeah. Uh, and we, there was also, we did another study because we were interesting, interested in Silvanagel's theories about the muscle deficit. Mm -hmm. uh, because when we started with this scraping procedure, we never gave this patient a structured, structured rear protocol afterwards. We told them to get going. Stop running when you can, and a very, very aggressive kind of rehab. Uh, no protocol. Yeah. And, and we thought if, if what she says is right, then lots of them should come back with problems because they, if they have this low muscle strength. So we, uh, what we did was we, we did our test protocol uh, uh, when they had pain just before surgery. Uh, and then there was a, a significant deficit between the pain-free and the painful side. Okay. Then uh, we put the local in, mm -hmm. local anesthetic in, and half an hour later we did, re did the tests when they were pain-free after the local, and then there were no side differences. So it seemed that the pain accounts for lots of the side differences in, in, in those functional parameters, uh, at least in that uh, material we did up in Sweden. So. Mm -hmm. That made us believe in, in this relatively aggressive mm -hmm. uh, return to activity. Yeah. Uh, I certainly agree that they need to load much heavier than people consistently do. Yeah. Um, in terms of then sort of adjuncts, and, and obviously in the UK we can't use uh, 
probably, I can never say the, the sclerotant injection properly yeah. in the term, but I don't think it's licensed here for use. So yeah. people develop the high volume injections yeah. um, and um, there's still quite a lot of corticosteroid injections done here. So yeah. what are your thoughts around those sort of two types of injections? And Yeah, uh, cortisone, uh, I think that's, it's out. It's uh, old-fashioned out, sorry to say that, but it, it's, a, it's a very good uh, treatment for many conditions. Mm -hmm. But for the Achilles and patella tendon, it should be out. Uh, I thought it was uh, okay to inject it in the retrocalcaneal bursa, uh, but it can actually diffuse from the bursa into the tendon and cause lots of problems. I, I uh, had that problem myself with the patient I treated. So. So uh, it can travel in the tissue. So even if you uh, think, think or see, if you use ultrasound when you inject it, that we inject outside, it can still end up inside it. Mm -hmm. And we've seen some disasters um, after cortisone. Yeah. Also, if they end up having surgery after they've had cortisone injections, the tissue where the cortisone was injected heal very poorly. So it's not uncommon to have wound rupture problems uh, after surgery, uh, infections. Uh, so it, it has no place uh, around the Achilles mm. uh, and the patella and, and you think the same risks may exist by using the high volume injections that still include the uh, steroid even? You know? Yeah, I, first I don't understand why steroids are included because it's uh, <clears throat> a non-inflammatory condition and uh, there is not, it's difficult to explain to the patient why do you use an anti-inflammatory agent on, for a non-inflammatory mm -hmm. condition. Um, so that's number one. And then, then uh, uh, the high volume injection, it's designed to release the fat from, as far as I know, to release the fat from the tendon uh, to, to create this fluid layer in between. Uh, and it might work in certain cases, maybe early cases, uh, but the ones where we struggle to release the fat with the knife, it must be tricky to do it with fluid. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, Lorenzo Maschi here has tried it because we want to have an opinion how, how it worked, but the, it didn't work very well in his hands, and uh, so we, we are not using it. And uh, if it's going to be used, definitely uh, get rid of the cortisone. I think the theories of breaking adhesions in the paratenin as well, and certainly having yeah. visualized it and done and seen it, it looks like it was sort of stretched and then burst the paratenin, but uh, yeah. pretty painful. Yeah, and maybe, I mean, if it's a case where this fat infiltration is less pronounced, uh, uh, maybe. Yeah. Maybe if marcaine is used, the marcaine is a little neurotoxic, you know, so maybe mm -hmm. uh, th that can have an effect on the nerves outside the temple. But uh, I, I wouldn't use cortisone with it. Uh, and in recent years, um, obviously, shockwave therapy has become, again, a little bit sort of trendy for, for tendons. Yeah. And there's been a few studies published. Is it something that you guys use and, and have? No, I, we don't use it. But uh, for, if we stay with the acrylamide portion, mm -hmm. the nerves are on the deep side of the tendon. And shockwave is most often applied from the superficial side, and that's the only side of the tendon that's normal. So, so if there is tendinopathy, yeah. so so I, I wouldn't do, use it for that purpose. If I would use it, then I would use it from the side. Okay. But then the sural nerve might get affected. Uh, 
for the Achilles insertion is different because we now know from uh, new research in Ulmo that the most nerve-rich tissue in the insertion is the subcutaneous bursa. Yeah. A tissue that's very rarely is mentioned in articles related to surgery or other treatments. That's where you have uh, by far the most nerves. So if you use shockwave down there, you will affect the nerve-rich tissue. So maybe yeah. maybe the effects are better there. Yeah. Same with tennis elbow. We have also seen now in research at home that the most nerves are located superficially, mm -hmm. just superficially to the extensor origin. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I have a vague recollection. You might have said at a talk. Um, uh, that you um, reset the bursa when you do um, insertional tendons. Yeah, yeah. Right? and that is based on these findings because we were a little confused when we read those surgical studies that uh, now it's become popular to use arthroscopic treatment, you take off the halion deformity and retroclacanial bursa yeah. and the results are not that fantastic. Yeah. And we always found in our material that the subcutaneous bursa is very thick, so we tend to take that out. So we did a study where we took out uh, the subcutaneous bursa, the retrocalcaneal bursa, upper calcaneus, and scraped the, the deep side of the Achilles and mm -hmm. compared where do we have most nerves. And by far number one was the subcutaneous bursa. Second was the retrocalcaneal, and, and then the others were very few nerves. And uh, you mentioned obviously nerve ingrowth uh, a while back. Uh, some studies, certainly Achilles rupture studies, suggest the nerve ingrows first into the tendon and the blood vessels are nearly there to nourish it. Do you think that's the case with tendinopathy, that the, the nerve's the primary driver, or do you think the blood vessels are the primary driver and the nerve's, like you said, autonomic to control the blood vessels? Yeah, and those studies, uh, they, they are on mainly on experimental uh, uh, um, ruptures. And that's a completely different thing. Uh, uh, so it, it's important that that is not mixed up with tendinopathy, yeah. because in tendinopathy we, we rarely see nerves in, in, the, in the tendon. Mm -hmm. uh, I spoke with Professor Forsgren in Ulmo, and he has studied these biopsies for 20 years now, okay. from all kinds of levels in the tendon, deep side, superficial side, in the middle, mm -hmm. and he said, Rarely any nerves in the okay. tendinopathy Achilles, very rarely. In the paratendon itself? Uh, outside the yeah. tendon, yes, the outside, especially on the deep side. Yeah. Okay. Um, Jamie Gader from uh, Monash, but now at Canberra, um, he asked a particular question relating to your sort of experience of your research. Of what tips can you give us as clinicians about how to differentiate uh, tendinopathy from other disorders, particularly the Achilles, I think? Yeah, um, if we start with the Achilles mid portion, number one is to exclude a partial rupture, because mm -hmm. you can of course have both conditions at the same time, tendinopathy plus a partial rupture. Especially the older generation, if you're really careful, because they can get the partial rupture quite easy uh, after a, a rapid walk or something like that. Uh, and you can do that using ultrasound and Doppler. Uh, look for changes on the superficial side, the side, the most loaded side of the tendon when you exercise. That, if you find structural changes and high blood flow on the superficial side, uh, then there is a high risk of partial rupture. So that's, not, that's number one. Mm -hmm. 
then if you find a normal Achilles, uh, you should of course look for the plantaris. Uh, you can find it with ultrasound, find it high up, follow it distally. Uh, put the Doppler on and see if there is localized high blood flow medial to the Achilles. Um, then there is a high likelihood it could be caused by plantaris involvement. So that's for the mid portion. For the insertion, um, posterior ankle problems uh, like ostrigonum, for example. Um, that's probably the most common ones. I rarely see patients having uh, tib posterior and peroneal tendon problems uh, that are mixed up with Achilles. That's, it's rare in, in our population. The patella tendon, it's um, important to scan these patients because uh, to just have a clinical diagnosis and subject them to very high loads in eccentrics, uh, it's not fun when you find out after six months that the tendon was normal and they had a cartilage defect in the patella. So, so um, cartilage defect is one side mm -hmm. diagnosis and the other one is plica. Yeah. Plica. I've seen it in many young kids having severe pain, uh, uh, normal fi findings on MRI and ultrasound, and they have this minor plica that that uh, causes lots of pain. Okay. So basically, a good solid investigation. Look at everything, and make yeah. sure we get imaging done. To yeah, to and many people say you don't need imaging in tendinopathy, but you certainly do to be able to confidently give them the, the right type of uh, treatment. Okay. Um, in terms of when we're sort of doing our treatments, we've gone through our eccentrics, we think our patient's doing quite well and getting back to sort of normal function. When would it be considered safe to return them to play? So if we're thinking of uh, sports like football, hockey, rugby and things. Yeah. That's one of the questions particularly for Yes, them. after um, some kind of treatment. Um, well, if, if they are in eccentrics, we, we see the best results if they can be taken out of sport for six weeks uh, and do their eccentrics uh, and then gradually combine their sport with eccentrics for another six weeks. Uh, uh, that's one way. Mm -hmm. uh, if they've had uh, scraping surgery, um, it varies a lot, but you can, you can have them back in high-level sports after two to three weeks. Uh, and, but it can also take six weeks. But it's rarely uh, longer than six weeks after a scraping procedure. Mm. Uh, they tend to be stiff for a long period afterwards, but they have no pain so they can train and play on high level. Okay. Jumper's knee, the, the arthroscopic shaving procedures, um, we have seen in high level rugby players that they they are back two to four months uh, in full rugby, two okay. to four months after the procedure. Okay. But there is, of course, an individual variation depending for, for the patella tendon, how much quadriceps atrophy they had and, and all that. Okay. And do you have any clinical sort of capacity tests then for the quads and the, the plantar flexors if you're looking at the two areas? to identify weakness or is it a case of sticking on the uh, kinetics? You mean after treatment? Or before, yeah, when you see them in the clinic to really work yeah, out. Yeah, no, not, not really. Um, it's more after treatment uh, when we send them out to the teams that the physios sort of uh, compare uh, with the, with the non-inner side and, and we, 
we learned to load them back until they level up pretty good with the okay. non-injured side. Okay. So always use the non-injured side as your outcome. Yeah. To compare for it. tendon off, but it's it okay to do that. Uh, I know for ACLs it's mm. not really good because both sides get weak if mm. you in your ACL on one side. So, so but for tendon off, it seems okay. Okay. How's that sit with the central changes that have been identified in the upper limb, particularly that yeah. have bilateral sort of weakness or certainly um, uh, reflex changes in terms of um, speed of function? Yeah, I I don't. I'm not aware of, uh, there are not that many studies on in the lower extremities mm. uh, in terms of that, um, but that, that is needed, yeah. that's needed. Okay. Uh, we, we, we found one interesting thing in Sweden and that was that uh, where I work we see patients traveling from long distances, so mm. if they have pain in both Achilles, uh, they tend to want to be operated at both tendon, in both tendons at the same time. So, but then there were um, 13 patients that uh, for some reason only the, had, were operated on one side uh, and uh, 11 of those 13 uh, didn't need surgery on the other side uh, because being pain-free after the first operation uh, and then they became pain-free on the non-operated side also. So there, there is uh, lots of activity in the central nervous system. Uh, um, there was an animal study, you probably heard about that, uh, uh, where we induced tendinopathy in the uh, rabbit Achilles in a, in a specific machine. So one leg was kicking until tendinopathy and the other leg was not moving. Uh, and then we should use the non-kicking leg as a, a control. And we found the same tendinopathy changes on both sides. Uh, and even more interesting was that another guy looked at the muscle, the calf muscles. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the kicking leg, they were necrotic, and in the non-kicking leg, they were also necrotic. Yeah. So, so the central nervous system is um, a, a major part yeah, in, in, in tendinopathy side. And, and in that study, you'd, um, if I remember correctly, you'd excluded um, systemic inflammatory markers as the mechanism yeah. for effect for that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, and also we have to remember that we mainly find sympathetic nerves on the deep side of the tendon. So, so uh, <coughs> it's a it's a condition with um, still many questions remaining about how it starts and uh, um, if we can prevent. And uh, we know we can treat it pretty well now. Mm -hmm. I think uh, the majority of mid-porch and tendinopathy we can cure uh, relatively easy. Mm -hmm. uh, it should never end the career uh, of any recreational activity or any sport activity. Uh, what sort of percentage of patients, which is probably hard because you work in tertiary care and yeah. secondary opinion here, but what percentage would respond to the primary intervention of eccentrics, let's say? Um, and what percentage might need treatment? But you're probably biased with the group. Yeah, when we, when we started with eccentrics, uh, a little more than 80% was satisfied with eccentrics. But then, you know, we went on with the injections. Patients up there came to us and said, oh, eccentric does not work, I want injections. Mm -hmm. And I don't believe that they had done the eccentrics the full way because now they heard about the injections, it was easier and they went for the easy one. And it's even more now when we have the scraping procedure that many patients say, hey, eccentrics does not work. But I don't think they've done done it the proper way. Okay. 
So to find out, maybe this should be tested in an environment uh, uh, that uh, I am not involved in. Uh, I, I, I would think so. Yeah. Where you can really uh, strictly divide them into the different groups and yeah. uh, make sure that they try these samples. And, I still think you can cure a majority of non-actives and recreational athletes with eccentrics, mm -hmm. uh, with the exception of the ones that have plantaris issues maybe. Yeah. Uh, and then high-level athletes, they have quite often done uh, enough of eccentrics uh, and that might be the group to focus on, on surgical scraping. Okay. Okay. And you, you touched briefly on the upper limb and, and the lower limb. Do you think we can extrapolate lower limb findings to the upper limb or vice versa? Or? I, I don't think so because it's weight bearing and non weight bearing, so I think it might be different. Yeah. Um, we know that the bone mass differs a little bit, uh, weight bearing, non weight bearing mm -hmm. uh, extremities. So, so logically, tendons would also differ, but. Um, and in terms of the tendons, I guess the lower limb's energy storage and the upper limb's primarily positional tendons. Yeah. There's a few energy storage ones. Yeah. And that would be the other perspective. Yeah. We have some interesting results on the tennis elbow now that, uh, uh, again, um, the blood flow findings in relation to the structural changes, uh, where we have focused on interfering with the regions with high blood flow outside the tendon. Mm -hmm. uh, and got very good clinical results by a simple scraping procedure uh, after provocation, uh, scraping the region with high blood flow. Mm -hmm. It's basically the fascia you scrape away. Okay. Uh, so, so that might be uh, something that's a little bit similar to yeah. the, the lower extremity. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, and I think what we'll do, if it's all right, is just ask you a few specific questions that people have asked. Um, I think we've probably touched on most of the questions. Um, there's one specific one from a gentleman called Russell Stoker. He wanted to know, um, does the muscle architecture differ in patients? Um, particularly, I think this was related to the Achilles, thinking about uh, fascicle length and uh, fibril sizes um, in, in the plantar flexors compared to healthy controls. I don't. I can't well. answer no. that one. That's that's too tough for me. I'm, I'm an orthopedic surgeon. <laughs> Not smart enough for that. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I think all the other questions we've we've um, actually covered within the discussion that we've had. So I'm sorry if I didn't name names uh, whilst we went through it. Um, I'll just touch on a few now. Uh, um, Paul Allen and Sibylla asked questions about injections and um, uso and. Um, Neuromanta and fusion, fusion Physio in Belfast asked about um, a bit that actually we do need to ask about now, which I've forgotten. Biopsychosocial. So um, looking at fear avoidance behaviour, catastrophizing, and um, pain behaviours. Yeah. Do you think that actually ties in with the lower limb and we should look at it from a tendon perspective like it's been done for back pain? It's interesting thoughts. I have not really gone into that, but it's when you, when you uh, see how the patients fill in their pain scores, uh, it's quite fascinating. Uh, some patients uh, score close to 100 uh, and other scores 20. Um, both of them cannot participate in the sport, but they range the pain levels so differently. So, so um, I, it's, it's interesting. It, um, mm -hmm. it, 
and I don't know it, it needs to be be um, studied a little bit better I think there there are some interesting studies now um, where you can use uh, functional MRI and uh, uh, you can sort of trace the uh, pain pain to the brain yeah um, and uh, a study we we were close to do in Uma but we couldn't for different reasons was to study the uh, uh, FM, fMRI before and after treatment uh, to see whether that uh, positioning in the brain uh, um, uh, changed after, after successful treatment but uh, we haven't done it so far but maybe we can do it later on yeah. okay Wonderful. Um, I'll just actually check if there's any other questions from in the room I think from uh, James or Uzo I think we've probably covered pretty much everything that uh, everybody sent in via Twitter. So thank you for all the uh, questions that came our way and also from the um, emails that came through the MACP feed. Um, in closing, I'd like to thank the MACP for uh, arranging today um, and Uzo for letting me come and uh, ask uh, Hakan uh, some questions and obviously um, thank Professor Hakan Alfredson for his generous time in between his uh, clinic today to come and actually talk to us and uh, try and educate us a little bit more about tendons. Um, so thank you very much. Um, if you'd like to find out any more about uh, Hakon, I'll let you give us the information where it is. Thank you, thank you. It was a pleasure to have this discussion. Uh, uh, well, um, if you want to get hold of me, I'm uh, here at Pure Sports Medicine uh, one week per month. Uh, and then I am at my own clinic in Umeå, the Alfredson Tendon Clinic. And then I'm also at the Umeå University. So. Uh, Go and find me if you like. <laughs> Thank you. What are we expecting as the, the next big thing in tendinopathy, I guess, is the uh, question that we should lead out with from uh, Stephen Wall as well. Yeah, I think the next big thing is that um, we are now going into um, uh, treatments that are even more uh, uh, minimally invasive, treatments where you can uh, uh, return to high-level sports uh, very very quickly. Um, there are some some uh, uh, new methodologies that that probably will allow for a very quick return. Mm. Um, so we'll see in the next coming half year. I think after the summer here we will start to use some of these uh, new approaches here to to, uh, to try to shorten the return to activity. Of course, for all groups, but maybe for the professional athletes, it's even more interesting to come back quickly. Because it seems, it seems, sorry, I continue, but it seems that these tendons are not weak tendons. Uh, they are most likely very strong tendons. And there is an, a new study recently published by the Australian group, um, uh, Sean Docking and uh, Cook, uh, where they show that. Um, the thick tendinopathy tendon actually includes more normal tendon tissue than the thin normal tendon. So, so what we previously like to call the degenerative and weak thick tendon might instead be uh, the thick but strong tendon. Uh, the terminology degenerative, it's not very good and it's based on what the pathologist decided to call what he saw in the biopsies 
but uh, uh, it's actually not really good because uh, it implies weak, but it instead might be very strong tendencies. So, so uh, there is um, lots to think about for the future how we should treat these tendons. So I don't think we need to be uh, afraid of loading them up. Exclude partial rupture and then lower them up, that would be my advice.